Welcome to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and a community. This is your host, Ari Armstrong. Music by Jordan Smith, cjsclassical.com. Join my email list or help support the show financially at ariarmstrong.com. Our guest today is Lawrence Goldstone, author of Out of the Flames, the remarkable story of a fearless scholar, a fatal heresy, and one of the rarest books in the world. Thanks a lot for being with us today, Lawrence. Thank you for having me. So this book came out in 2002, so it's not your newest book, but to me, this is exactly the kind of period in history that I've been researching lately, so it's right up my alley. And this is a, such a timeless story. Um, I mean, people have been interested in Servetus for hundreds of years, and hopefully they'll continue to be interested in him for hundreds of years. So I appreciate you taking the time to uh, return to what for you is sort of back in your catalog. Well, it, it really is. It is such a fascinating story, and how we came to it is is a story in itself. So I, it, it's always fun to talk about this book. Nancy and I wrote six books together, and I've written a bunch on my own, and she has. But this is one of our favorites for lots of reasons, because of the material, because of some of the language we got to use. But how we came to the book, how we came to do the book, was a unique story in itself. Well, and... Michael Servetus's life just interacted with some of the most important and pivotal moments in European history, at least in the last, you know, millennium, and uh, some of the greatest figures of the 15, 1500s, and then later after his death, people in the 1600s and up to today. So it's just, it's also just a great introduction into that era of history and some of the important elements of religious religious tolerance and such it's got it's got so many it's got so many levels one of the things that has happened which was very gratifying is in a number of high schools across the country they use this as summer reading in ap history and so we're we're constantly getting emails from either parents or kids because it touches science it touches religion um it it is it is the story of the first information revolution, which has stunning parallels to what's going on now. So it was a, it, it is a story that was far more timeless than we realized it was going to be when we did it. Well, I'm really glad to hear that because, I mean, I'm, I was just blown away by the book. Just, just so you know, by the way, the reason that I got turned on to your book is because I was reading a book by an English historian named John Coffey, and he has a book called Persecution and Toleration in Protestant England. 1558 to 1689, so it overlaps some of your history. But in that book, he tells very briefly the story of Servetus. He's focused on England, so he, he only mentions it. But I got so interested in this character, I figured I should do some more research, and then I happened upon your book. So... Um, well, yeah, that's, just, you know, that's the, ba- it, it is, people find some of the best books I've ever found were because of mentions in other books. Um, we got, there was a book by a man named Andrew Dixon White, who became president of Cornell, called the, 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 something like the conflict of science and theology and Christendom or something, which traced every empirical science from when it was purely theologic through the dawn of the, of empiricism and then on to where, science is kind of where it is today, at least for, for most people. And we discovered somebody named Roger Bacon, who was an amazing character in the 13th century, and wrote about and wrote about him. So it is, it is these links. People who like history like links, like finding something that leads to something else. And so when you write history or read history, this, sort of, this is the sort of stuff that happens, which is the most fun. Well, and that's what I've been, unfortunately, it took me too long to come to appreciate how much a study of the past illuminates our present life. And so I would just urge readers out there who might think this is, this is anything but dry and alien, alien from our lives. It is very much, you can see it all around us, even today with, I mean, today there are people who are killed for their beliefs in certain parts of the world. Oh, there's, there is, in addition to the material being being so topical could not be more topical when good historians and for narrative historians like Barbara Tuckman is kind of God there is you you read it and it reads like fiction and we get a lot of we get a lot of comments most of them are positive but some negative comments and said you know um, this wasn't a very good novel because X or Y and you have to say well 
actually that's because it isn't a novel but it's a compliment because the style and a get going through the book made them feel like it's a novel. Let me just tell you the story of the first information revolution that led to Servetus or Servetus. I I've never figured out how to uh, Servetus. I've heard them all. But can, can I can I back up? I, sure. I totally want to get into that. But let's just stop for readers because I think a lot of people haven't heard of this character. So give me your elevator summary of who is Michael Servetus, just to kind of set the context, and then we'll get into the information revolution that you're talking about. He was a rare genius. He um, was a brilliant theologian. He was uh, he he discovered he is considered the father of comparative geography. He discovered circulation, blood circulation, seventy five years before William Harvey, and got no credit for it. Um, he was a a doctor. He was one of the people who pioneered autopsy. He had all of these. He, he had the distinction of being condemned to be burned at the stake by both Catholics and Protestants. And the Protestants, John Calvin, finally succeeded in doing it. Um, he lived, he was only 42 years old when he was executed. And he lived the most extraordinary life. He, he, escaped, uh, he escaped in a way after he had been arrested. He was a doctor. Um, under an assumed name in, in Vienne, which is near Lyon in France, and escaped in the kind of way that you would see in a Bourne movie. So he led this amazing life. He was a brilliant, brilliant man, but he had what was described as a, a genius for indiscretion. He simply was unable not to say what was on his mind. And ultimately, he just, he, he made enemies everywhere and it cost him he didn't have to, he didn't even have to die when he, after this this hair's breadth escape he could have gone to Italy where supporters are waiting to shield him but he went to Geneva to confront John Calvin who was kind of his bete noir and there was a show trial and these two and they they went head to head and that's another thing you would see it was the kind of trial that you would see in a John Grisham movie so there is this this guy's life was unbelievable. Well, you know, I tweeted the other day, if Netflix or Hulu or Amazon is looking for another miniseries, they should definitely buy the rights to your book and have you help with the screenplay because it is just, I mean, just the account of him escaping from prison was just <laughs> remarkable. And I thought, man, if you were writing a screenplay, you couldn't come up with stuff this good from scratch. You, uh, your lips to Hollywood's ears. You know, we've had any number of our books optioned and none of them, None of them ever – one of the things you learn when you deal with Hollywood is everything – all these incarnations of Hollywood where you think it's not the real world are grossly understatements, gross understatements. Hollywood is not the real world in – I'm not sure it's, it's the real universe. The way they do things, the way they think, the way they talk, how they spend money, what they spend money on, it's mind-blowing. So I would love it if they did it, but you, after you're in this business for a while, you say, okay, you know, whatever happens. Well, Jeff Bezos, if you're listening, I'm sure he's a regular listener of my podcast. Put 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 your thumb on the scales and get this one made. Really? Uh, so here's I just here's some key dates I wrote it wrote down just to kind of put things in context for listeners. The Gutenberg Bible came out in 1455. Right. Which which will become important for reasons that you've hinted at. That yes. That, now we're into the information revolution. That's right. correct. Michael Servetus was born in 1509 or 1511, depending on. Oh, okay. Maybe I looked at the it's wrong. It's one of the two. There, it's it, both dates have, have been used. I think okay. we used fifteen eleven, but it doesn't really matter. I was also just referring to internet sources, so who knows? <laughs> internet um, sources. <laughs> um, well, you you don't have a thing in the back with the timeline, so I was. I was no, just no, we didn't do time. that. No, we no we no we don't we don't do that. You got you got to you got to plow your way through it. Okay, so Luther's 95 Theses were posted in 1517. That's correct. So just a few years after he was born. And this is profoundly important. So he, was, he lived right in the thick of it in terms of Reformation history. He published his first book when he was relatively young called, in English, it's called Heirs of the Trinity. Right. 
1531, which is why, how he first got sentenced to death by the Spanish yeah, Inquisition. Yeah, that's right. He then, then as you say, he lived under an assumed name and uh, studied medicine and such. It wasn't until 1553 that he came out with Christianismi Restitutio, or yes. the rest, the restoration of Christianity. I guess that, we didn't. That is right. It. That's correct. And the same year that this book came out. And this, of course, caused a big, a big, big storm. For one thing, he talks about the Trinity, which was obvious. it got a lot of people in trouble. And the same. Well, he did that in the first book too. What's that? Say that. He did that in the first book too. Errors of the Trinity. He 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 essentially oh. denied the Trinity. He said it was not in the original because he could read the original text because he he was oh I forgot to mention he also was a, a brilliant linguist he could read arabic he could read hebrew so he could read he could read the original text and he said the trinity is made up which in fact it was um in later in the, uh, after after the council of nicaea and so he was writing errors in the trinity which was a um direct attack of saint augustine who had written on the trinity so for purposes of his life, him writing his 1553 book while he was living under an assumed name is what linked him to the older book, which is what part of what led to his death. So right. he, was not only, he was not only rediscussing these themes again, but he was doing it after he had safely made a break from his old life. And so Yes. Yes, he didn't, you, you know, he, uh, discretion, as I said before, discretion was not this man's long suit. Which is my uh, wife said that's why I'm so drawn to him. You know, I have to say, and so he was burned in the stake the same year, 1553, yes. in Geneva, yes. when Calvin was basically basically the dictator of Geneva. Yes. But going back to that point, I found obviously I'm irritated with Calvin through this process. I thought he, I think he did a horrible injustice. But reading reading through your story, I I could not help but to be angry with Servetus because I'm just I'm just banging myself on the forehead saying why would you do that yes and so if i understand the history correctly when he was supposed to be escaping he actually went to geneva yes that's correct got a hotel room or the equivalent in yeah. geneva and actually went to a church service where yes. calvin was in attendance is that yes. true uh, no, no, I don't. I don't think he went to the. He might have gone to the service where Calvin. He did announce himself there, but it was it was clear he was there. He is the kind of guy you want to shake by the lapels. He didn't have lapels probably, but you want to shake him by the lapels and say, "Don't do this." But he just couldn't help himself. And, and this was long after Calvin had made very clear that he wanted to see Servetus executed. Oh, they their their rivalry went back to the University of Paris in 1534 when Calvin was still Jean Chauvin, which is the name he was born with, and, and they were competing students. And Jean Chauvin, Calvin was very frustrated because this this foreign student, and Servetus was going under Michel Villeneuve at that point, was besting him, and they were supposed to have a debate, but Servetus was warned that he was going to be arrested, so he left, and he didn't show up. Jean Chauvin later became John Calvin, Jean Calvin, and, and they had loathed, he had loathed Servetus for for 20 years, and Servetus just baited him. In fact, um, uh, Calvin's Calvin Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin's magnum opus. Servetus got a copy and effectively in, put notes in the margin and sent it back to him. You know, like like an like an editor saying, "You don't know what you're." Essentially, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. And Servetus was such a brilliant theologian that the notes were stunningly accurate. And Calvin, who was dictator of Geneva, was thinking, if I ever get my hand on this guy, I'm going to have him burned at the stake. And he did. And he did. I think it's fair to say that Calvin was fairly impressed with himself. Well, yeah, but I think you could say that about Servetus, too. I mean, in, in, in fairness, you, you know, it was one of the things because it was a new world. And we should go back and talk about the information revolution because the personalities that it that it created were very similar to you know you can see you can see John Calvin and Mark Zuckerberg um, let me just do this let me what happened was Gutenberg in the 1450s invents printing with movable type he didn't invent printing 
Okay. And, but lots of people were doing it because people who had survived the plague the year before, there was a lot of interest. People were learning to read and there was a big market for being able to create books that you could do more than one copy, not just woodcuts or scribes. So Gutenberg creates this process, um, beating a couple of other people who were very close to it. And they print, I think, a couple of hundred copies of the Bible. This is called a, uh, a folio. There is a piece of printing paper about 18 inches by 36 or something. If it's folded once, it's called a folio, which are these giant books you see in museums. If they fold it twice, it's called a quarto, and they fold it three times, which is like a hardcover today, that's an octavo. So, so Gutenberg does his folios, and they all of a sudden, they have revolutionized uh, they have revolutionized information because hundreds of copies can be made of any one book. And then eventually, but it's still mostly in monasteries, folios are big, it's not for the common people. Then quartos start to be developed in, say, the 1480s. And then a guy named Aldus Minutius comes along. He is an Italian and he perfects, he does two things. He folds the paper three times, creating the octavo. So think of the folio and the quarto as mainframe computers, and then the quarto as kind of an office computer. But Aldous folds the paper three times, creates the size of a hardcover that can be fit in saddlebags, develops a new kind of font called italics, which slants, which you can get more words on the page, starts printing a thousand copies of every book. They fit in saddlebags, they go across Europe. Think of that as the beginning of the internet. At the beginning, all this is just reprinting the Greeks and the Romans, classical authors. But then in the early 1500s, people start realizing, hey, if you can take in information, like I remember I used to use Prodigy to just take in information. You can put it out. And people like Desiderius Erasmus start writing new stuff. And it gets printed a thousand copies at a time, spreads across Europe. And all of a sudden, think of these people as bloggers. Erasmus was your ancestor. And all of a sudden, people are not only learning classical knowledge and knowledge about plants and medicine, early medicine, but they're getting their ideas out there. This had never, ever happened before. And in 1517, Martin Luther posts his 95 theses. A, a century before, a man named Jan Hus did roughly the same thing and was burned at the stake and nobody knew it. But... Something happened with Luther's 95 theses before he went before Charles V and said, here I stand. And that was someone printed them. A printer took those 95 theses, created 2,500, I think it was, and they went all over Europe. And that was the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. So by the time Luther gets called in front of Charles, the Emperor Charles V, he is so well known that he, he has become invulnerable. So all of this process leads into people like Servetus writing on the errors of the Trinity at the, at the end of the 1520s, where everyone starts to read it. People get followers. So you get these people whose fame and whose, whose prestige and whose wealth and position is all based on this new technology. And if you don't think that's Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg, you don't know anything. I mean, that is, these people are precisely in temperament, in style, and in practice. What we see today from these internet giants, from the Google people and, and so a Servetus is kind of a rebel and going against the, the established order. Calvin was a nobody. And by the time Servetus confronts him in 1553, Calvin has ridden the fame, this internet fame, to be the dictator of Geneva.
and they clashed. Servetus lost and was burned at the stake. I mean, this is an amazing story that if you read it, you think you're reading about today. So and, I'm sorry for, for taking all that time, but that, I mean, that's really the crux of what's going on here. No, no, that's excellent. And for listeners, ju- just the material from you and Nancy about Gutenberg's struggles. He was a genius technically, technically, but not so good on the business end. And the subsequent rise of this printing revolution, that by itself is worth the cost of the book. That's just super interesting. Yeah, you got to, he, he got through Fust and Schaefer, Johann Fust. He had his, he had his invention stolen from him and he died in obscurity. We don't even know the year Gutenberg died. We don't know where he's buried because he, he was totally, everything he did was just stolen out from under him. And I, th- I found it a little bit humorous that Servetus' first book, Heirs of the Trinity, was a runaway bestseller. Right. First time. Whereas Calvin's first book, which I don't even remember, it was some kind it's, of literary it's, it's, novel. Yeah, right, yes. Was, it was a flop. Yeah, it, it did very poorly. But his later work, which was the Institutes of yeah, it was extremely successful and went through many, many editions. And, well, that's why we know the name Calvin today, because yes. he and so, to, to me, I, do, I think you do a great job of weaving together these three important strands of history. The printing revolution, as you've mentioned. The rise of humanist ideas, which began to be printed on, in these new books. Which, incidentally, the small books were also easier to hide from the censors. That's right. They had, they had that going for them. And then, as you alluded to, the rise of the Reformation, starting with Luther, and then Calvin and many other fig- figures. And these three things interacted together in this really interesting way to, to forge that era of history in that part of the world. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled. You know, you write these, you write these things because you know, I, I suppose you can tell I'm reasonably, this book's reasonably old and I'm still totally psyched about it. You, you write these things for the enjoyment of other people. You know, it, it's, it's being a writer, it's in many ways, it's really a dreadful business, but writing is wonderful and sharing is this in this kind of sharing is wonderful. And so when we hear that someone has enjoyed what we did, there's just nothing better. Well, I think it does a great job of striking the balance between the, ac- the deep academic work, but then writing it in a, this vibrant way that's accessible to everyone. It's like you said, I, yeah, I often thought, it's like, wow, this could have easily been a novel instead. Um, so, yeah, I think it's... Thank you. That's, yeah, that's, I, that's the trick. You know, academics are funny because a lot of them, they decry the ignorance of, of the ordinary person and then write books that only other, another academic can, can decipher. You know, the, the trick to me, and there are, there are people writing Eric Foner in American history, which is really what I do the most of. You, you just write really well. It's accessible. The, the scholarship is superb, but you you go through it. And in the end, it's, it's painless to read. And that's what we aspire to. Yeah, I, I really, just quick aside, today I was looking at a history book that I actually want to read at some point. But it was $64 in the Kindle version. And I thought, well, do, you, do you people want anyone to read these books? So, yeah, there's, there's definitely this problem in academia, I think, of making work basically inaccessible to normal people. And so, you know, you're the, you're the opposite of that. So thank you. Oh, for thank that. you. Thank you. So, oh, go ahead. No, no. Go, you, go. Okay. So I wanted to discuss Servetus's some of his key ideas. And we've already alluded to one of these. And so, to my mind, there's three, actually, I'll add another one, which is tolerance, but his, he's considered an anti-Trinitarian, yes. which we'll get into. He has some interesting ideas about child baptism, but that's not really the key point. The key point is his view on original sin, as in, we don't have it, as opposed to Calvin. His view on predestination. Right. And then what's really fascinating, especially for us today, is his views on religious tolerance. And so let's get let's return back to his view of the Trinity. So maybe set up the traditional view and then try to explain where Servetus was going was different differing from that view. Well, what what happened in, in the first two centuries of Christianity was they 
Christians were having a lot of trouble getting converts because people couldn't seem to grasp this notion of God being in human form, but not in human form. There was, they, they were having a lot of trouble explaining it. And I do believe it was St. Augustine who originally said, well, that's because these forms all merge and there was no Trinity in the original text. But in the Vulgate edition written by St. Jerome, I think in the fourth century, I'm, this is not my strongest area, he developed this notion of the Trinity. And to Servetus, all of this, the basic, the thrust of what Servetus had to say was that it, God exists in everything. In fact, during the trial, one of the passages, and the trial was recorded, by the way, so we have, we have more or less a transcript. Servetus said, God is present in everything. And Calvin said, well, that means you mean God is present in the floor. And if we walk over the floor, we walk over God. And that, and that was the crux of the argument. Calvin wanted to take the notion of God and remove it from people. And so you had predestination, you had all of this, you had God's will, God, godliness in, the, in, in its entirety imposed on people externally. And for Savitas, God was a more internal a more internal phenomenon. He's also, by the way, considered the, the spiritual founder of Unitarianism. You go into any Unitarian church and you mention Savitas and they will know who he is. So the, the, the thrust of all of this, so Savitas aimed at certain conventions that he thought were contrivances for that allowed the Christian church, both Catholics and Protestants, to maintain control over the people. Because even though um, Protestantism supposedly took the priest as an intermediary to God, they didn't change anything really because God was still this internal phenomenon. And to Servetus, making God an, an external phenomenon was a violation of of what the tenets of religion should be. And so everything everything that he did was based on trying to change that central perception. So let me try to summarize my idea of what Servetus was after, because frankly, when I would read what he had to say about the Trinity, it seems just like parsing very fine semantics to me in some ways. So it seems to me Servetus was saying something like, well, God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not three separate persons, but they're three separate aspects or modes of God. Is that seem fa a fair yeah, way to that, Yes. Yeah, because again, you're thinking three separate persons is, is making it that much more external. Three entities three aspects of God, and then where do you put, then where do you put God? So yes, it is parsing in the sense, it is parsing in the sense that, you know, most of, um, I'm a constitutional law scholar, basically by training. And so I read a lot of Supreme Court cases, and I see parsing constantly. And um, Within the Constitution, I see lots of instances where a justice will write an opinion and force fit that opinion into his, sometimes her, um, predetermined predisposition and, and preconceptions of what the Constitution means. That's the same thing that's going on here. What, what you have is two overriding views of the nature of God, and then each of them trying to create what amounts to a legal argument to show that their conception is correct. So the parsing, yeah, but you would see the same thing in Institutes of the Christian Religion. Every phrase of the Bible means this, this means this. And in fact, the scholastic method, which when it goes back to Peter Abelard, is the, is the is the uh, the basis of all of this, both theological analysis and current legal analysis. Well, and of course, the debate over the nature of the Trinity 
that is a huge issue in Christianity going all the way back to Arius. And so, you know, there have been, there have been lots of people killed over yes. <laughs> slightly, slightly variant views of the Trinity. Yeah, we had, we had fun with Arius. He was, uh, after the Council of Nicaea, he was exiled to Albania, which I think we said was no more appealing then than it is now. Mm. Well, he got off easy, though. Yes, he did. Oh, yeah. yeah. Could have been worse. His footsteps. And so, well, where the rubber hits the road, as far as I can tell, with the Trinitarianism, is your view on how close to human beings is God. Right. So with Cerbetus' view, God is very close to human beings. Yes. But that's not very convenient if you want an established religion with your priestly go-betweens between human beings and God. Yes. Yes. So it very much feeds into the politics of the church, and then the church feeds into the politics of the state. And so it becomes, it's an issue that is seemingly small and semantic, but it quickly becomes all-engulfing in terms of absolutely the organization of society. Ab- absolutely. The closer you make God to man, to, to humans, then that... You, it means you need you need the intermediary that much less, and therefore the intermediary has less power. You know this is all this is power politics we have going on here. People did not want to give up the whole. Luther got started because he went to Rome and he saw the what he thought was the total corruption of of the church hierarchy in maintaining power and having these lavish banquets and living wonderfully while telling ordinary people to do these ridiculous things and then to indulgences and then to pay for them. So if you take the step back and you say that the that maintaining power, personal power was one of the motivations of the people who were dealing with the religion, then you see how Servetus's points of view were so threatening to that because he's saying, well, you don't really, you are responsible. And if you go to a Unitarian church, it's a very personal kind of form of worship. And because he, what he is saying is you are in fact responsible for your own goodness. That, that is not going to be, you know, somebody else isn't, and it wasn't imposed on you, and it wasn't decided in advance. You make your own choices, and you decide what is good and what is not. Okay. I, yeah, that's a great – it's – again, that's one of those issues that's just so important for us to understand today because I think especially today a lot of people in America, well, and throughout much of Europe, just – think this is kind of silly <laughs> but if you look at how it was actually the, the role it played in the in the context of history it's it's really interesting and important it, it could not it, it is it could not be less silly because if you yes maybe in this incarnation the, of, of centuries ago but the, the nature of goodness what constitutes goodness what constitutes um godliness if that's the if if that's the way you believe, is the central issue that we are dealing with politically in this country, in Europe, around the world. There is there is no stronger issue than what is goodness. I mean, I regardless of what your political point of view is, you look. We we have a political philosophy now that is based on power and strength, and I think conservatives and liberals would agree. They might disagree on whether that's a good thing, but that is an incarnation of what constitutes goodness. So these issues they have not gone gone away at all. Well, that's a good transition to another point, which is the debate over original sin and child baptism. So maybe set that up that that up for us. This is this is not my again. This is not my strong suit. I'm much better in doing this in a philosophical sense than a theological sense. But original sin, original sin and predestination, baptism is definitely not my area. But original sin. And, and a predestination, again, is something that takes, takes will. Anything, if it happened before you were born and you have no control over, over it, then you are helpless to change the course of events. So you are, 
if you believe in original sin and if you believe that that man is essentially a sinful and that sin resides in us and has never stopped, well, what's your choice? You know, Calvin's notion was um, you can live a perfectly good life and still go to hell if you were if you were predestined to do so. But if you live a bad life, then it probably means you weren't. I mean, it, it, if you reduce Calvin's philosophy to its essence, it's hard. I, I could never understand why people would, would, would ascribe to it because it doesn't give you any opportunity. It's like a life sentence without parole. It gives you no opportunity to, to control your own life and to change your own destiny. So this whole notion of original sin and probably goes into infant baptism also, although I have to say in fairness, I've kind of forgotten that one, is based in this notion of who controls destiny and fate and, fr- and who gets into heaven. Right. Well, just a personal note, I was raised in a Protestant group where predestination was not any was not was very remote to our way of to the way of thinking so this whole i've never been sympathetic to this calvinistic idea of predestination it's never made sense to me right um and now i mean i'm not i'm not religious anymore but um so anyway i was very sympathetic with servetus's attack on calvin on that point another another point which struck me so during the trial in geneva servetus was treated quite horribly yeah as you describe, his prison cell was dark, dank. He complained about being eaten alive by maggots. Right. Which he was he was not that was not hyperbole. Nope. Um, you know, not having any not having sufficient food, not having changes of clothes, not having basic uh, tools by which he could do research and write defenses of himself. He was given pen and paper occasionally. Um, and so it was just truly horrific conditions. And Obvious, it seems obvious to me that they did this to people to try to beat him down psychologically so that they would just confess or at least not put up a fight and and uh, recant their positions. I mean, that just seems obvious that it was torture for purposes of getting people to change, to at least publicly state that they changed their minds. Yes. But what struck me. We haven't me come is, that far from that, by the way. Well, unfortunately. Yeah, we can we can talk about criminal justice a different day. Um, so, but what struck me about this is how cogently Servetus stated his case, even in these horrific conditions. Honestly, I'm not sure I would last two days in those conditions before I just be such a mess. I'm not sure I could do anything. Um, but he survived weeks of this kind yes, of what I, which I would call torture. Weeks. Um, I don't know if it extended into months, but certainly weeks. No, it was weeks. Yeah. Um, in these horrific conditions. And not only that, was able to create some very, some outstanding defenses, not only of himself directly, but of general concepts that he believed in. And one of the things that struck me is his comments on religious tolerance and saying, just making the broad point, look, you have no right to prosecute people based on their beliefs. And I just thought that was remarkable. Um, and so, you know, in a way, I, I consider him, I think it's appropriate to consider him one of the patron saints of religious tolerance. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He, you know, he is, I sometimes tell friends we are, we are all victims of our strengths. He was a remarkable, remarkable man. And as we said earlier, none of this had to happen. But he just couldn't, there's just, he couldn't restrain himself from attacking he he i believe there's no direct record of this but i believe he saw calvin as the epitome of everything he was fighting against intolerance ignorance um self-aggrandizement because servetus was not he could have had followers and chose not to and that that passion that he had for those ideals allowed him to endure these horrific conditions and maintain his brilliance, because brilliant he certainly was, and maintain his own energy and to go into court 
and to create what was a stunningly effective defense. And if it, if this wasn't a Stalin-esque show trial, he would have been acquitted. So yes, but but it was the it is this very these very strengths that put him in this position in the first place. You know, it's almost it's almost Shakespearean. Here here you have this incredible character with this tragic flaw. Yeah, I was struck by you can call it naivete or you can call it sort of a purity or an innocence that he seriously seemed to think that the truth would win out and that the better argument would win the day. And what actually happened is that the more politically powerful yep. <laughs> won the day. Um, I know. <laughs> and so Again, something else, something else with contemporary overtones. So it's both, it's inspiring and it's also frustrating and kind of a warning. Yes. Kind of a warning. So. Oh, when you write, when you write this, you know, when Nancy and I wrote this together, and and there were times that she would sit, we we would sit, and she would say, "We have to, I, I, I we have to do justice." Are, are you sure we're not? I said, "Look, we're doing our best," you know, because he's he's somebody you want to defend so much because. His decent, forgetting about all the indiscretion, and he had a big ego and lots of character flaws. But he was decent in a way that was so fundamental that you just want to protect him. And we obviously couldn't protect him physically, but we tried very much to present him in a way that did justice to his passion, to his ideas, to his brilliance, and to his commitment to um, what we do now consider, yes, a, a much more tolerant society than the one he encountered. Well, that's what I continually thought reading your book, is that it does do justice to Servetus. Thank you. And I'm... And I was really happy about that. I mean, it's it's a scholarly his, work of history, but it's also, I mean, the history is. Just, I mean, look, it's you, you, it's just easy to sympathize with Servetus, and I think it does. Just the fact that we remember his name now more because of other people's biographies and your recent bio, more recent biography, it, I think is an act of justice towards Servetus. So well, I hope so. I that part is excellent. Because even if you don't believe in, even if his theologic point of view is not is not your own, and he, you, you should. One should value the man and his, the way he expressed his beliefs. And even later, as you mentioned later in the book, even Calvinists who talked about this era of history later, at least granted that Calvin made a horrible mistake in this. And I doubt you could, you know, I doubt you could find any Calvinists today who would say, oh yeah, that was a really good idea to burn, to burn Servetus at the stake. And so in a way, in that sense, Servetus' ideas have won the day at least uh, in the in Europe and America, and so there's something I don't know. It, well, they've they've won they've won in a in a in, in a moral sense. I believe that we would now, if you put the morality of John Calvin and the morality of Michael Savitas next to each other, we would say, well, the morality of Savitas is a lot more appealing. On the other hand, behavior has not necessarily changed. So the hypocrisies that so infuriated Servetus, I think we're still fighting them, and sometimes successfully, sometimes less so. Well, to me, that's one of the key things that we need to learn from history, is just how horrifically individuals, and normal individuals, not just these warlords, not just Genghis Khan, right. normal individuals can can behave toward other people, just slaughter in, in the right or slash wrong conditions, what we consider to be normal people very often descend to the most brutal sorts of behaviors up to just torture and murder. And it's just astounding to me uh, that this is possible, but it's something to, you know, obviously. we are, we are a flawed species. There is no question about it. We are, we have been, we have been fighting people. One of the things, cause we've done, you, we do history and you go back and do, you can do people in the second century. The, the, remarkable through line is that people are reacting much the same way today to similar stimuli than they did as they did back then and we're fighting the same battles and and we are we are striving to achieve the same goals i mean one of the things one of the great 
joys for me to write history is to delve back and to get to know people because they're not all that different. And you get to live with people and really understand who they were and see the battles. And they're very, they're very much the same thing we're doing now. And I guess the other side of that coin is we should try hard not to take for granted things like our American First Amendment, which was the product of a long battle for religious liberty and liberty of conscience. And so we have made, I guess that's the inspiring part of it, we have made, I think, real moral progress in certain respects. And it's something that we need to fight to preserve. So that's why these kinds of stories, another reason why I appreciate these kinds of stories. I, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, originally, um, John Jay, who was not at the Constitutional Convention, wanted, he was a Huguenot, or descended and wanted Catholics forbidden from holding office in the in the United States, and there were a number of laws that um, barred in a number of states. There were places where Catholics or Jews could not teach school, could not hold office, and religious tolerance, the the uh, unwillingness to have a state religion, was something that was not taken for granted, but was something that was imposed because despite what a lot of people say, most of the, very few of the founding fathers were devout. Washington wasn't, Jefferson wasn't, Adams. Adams was probably the most religious of all of them and he wasn't particularly religious. But they had prejudices and those, they refused to write those prejudices into the Constitution, which I think is is a, a remarkable triumph. Well, before we move past Servetus' life to his legacy, uh, I will point out that his death, as you describe in the book, was horrific. Horrible. I mean, they burned him at the stake, and it was not quick. They roasted him. And so, I don't know if... Yes. I don't know if you want to say anything about that. It's well, they used green wood. They used green wood. The leaves were still on. The fire burned slowly. They wanted it to last a really long time, and it did. It was r- truly horrible. Calvin did not go to the execution. Yeah, it's it's amazing that people can participate in that kind of thing. And of the three copies of the book, we haven't really talked about the, the book, which is now incredibly valuable. One is in the Bibliothèque Nationale in France. One's in the National Library in Austria, uh, in Vienna. And the, other, the third one was discovered in Scotland. And the one they discovered in Scotland, in Edinburgh, turned out to be Calvin's own copy. And he had ordered all the copies of the book destroyed, but he could not bring himself to destroy his own copy. So just for listeners' benefit, after there's quite a lot of the book after the death of Servetus, which deals with, because what, one thing that happened is they, they tied one of Servetus's books, the Christianismi Restitutio, which was much his longest work and much more in detail. They tied it to him, and they Calvin explicitly intentionally tried to wipe out every single copy of this book. He did. They, 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 didn't, they didn't actually tie it to him. That's one of the things we discovered when we went to the Bibliothèque Nationale, that the copy that was supposedly tied to his leg that was singed, was singed mm-hmm. on the pages in the middle, not on the outside. So it was somebody had dripped while they were reading it. It was, it was the prosecutor, Coladon, his, his copy, and because his notes were in the flyleaf, and he had obviously reading it by a candle dropped wax. So there, there was, if there was a copy chained to his leg, it was totally destroyed. But Calvin did. There were a thousand copies printed and Calvin ordered all of them hunted down and destroyed. And they got 997 of them. And the only three that survive are Coladon and Calvin's and then one other, um, which no one knows who owned it, although it ended up um, with the King of Transylvania. And now and so it is becomes, in the National Library of Austria. And so your book becomes sort of something of a mystery story and people rediscovering these copies in sometimes very surprising circumstances. And that's and that's really fun because after this horrible depression of reading about Servetus dying, at least at least his life's work survived and people can still read it today. Yeah, you get you the, the the hunt for the three books or the discovery of the three books. That was really fun to do because we got to bring in Louis the Fourteenth and one of his mistresses, and we got to bring in Count Telecki, uh, who was uh, the. A, a Transylvanian count who discovered two large lakes in um, 
in in Africa. And we were when we when we first did it, we um, we emailed our editor and we said, "Oh, you're not going to believe this. This guy Count Alecki, who was kind of founded the Boy Scouts or something. I, I don't I don't remember, but he's an amazing character." I said he we described him. We said he was from Transylvania, and our editor wrote back and he said, "Well, perhaps he was a vampire." And and so that's funny because I mentioned the same thing to my wife. It's like yeah. we got to Transylvania. I was yeah. wondering if there were going to be vampires introduced to the story. And, Every, the rest of it is so crazy. And Transylvania was the most tolerant place in Europe at that time, which is something else nobody knows. And in Cluj, which is I guess the capitals, it still is there. There we'd, we we've been to Vienna and we've been to Paris. We did not get to Cluj. Um, mm. It it's there are still all these monuments and Count Telecki was a was a very big deal. And then the one. In Edinburgh was discovered in, in some library in the back shelves, and that we knew that was Calvin's copy because Calvin had torn sixteen the first sixteen pages out of his copy to mail them to Servetus, um, or to to give to try to get Servetus arrested, and that copy had the first sixteen pages ripped out. So it, it's a great detective story. Yeah, I re- yeah I really enjoyed that, and I'm going to leave that mostly to listeners to discover for themselves. There are four characters that you mentioned in that latter part of your book that I do want to mention a little bit more because these people, these are people known to us today for the most part. So there's people who came across Servetus's work or were in some way inspired by Servetus. Leibniz, the philosopher and mathematician. Voltaire. Yes. Jefferson. I mean, Thomas Jefferson. And the physician, William Osler. Osler. And so let's go through them. And when we get to Osler, we can talk about Servetus's great scientific discovery, which I think we mentioned but haven't really discussed in right. detail. Well, um, Voltaire was an early supporter. In fact, we uh, Voltaire's um, home, country home, was in Ferny, which is right across the border from Geneva and he could look down we went we went to visit and he could look down and he wrote he wrote this scathing critique he loathed Voltaire loathed Calvin and he, and he wrote this scathing critique and defended Servetus and and actually returned Servetus to fame Leibniz and and um, Jefferson was introduced to uh, Servetus through William Small, who was his tutor, who was a member of the Lunar Society, which is a whole, which is a, which is a story in itself. Leibniz was also they also they were drawn to the scientific aspects of him, and William Osler was the. Um, probably the best known physician in both Canada and the United States. And then subsequently in England, uh, he was one of the founders of the Johns Hopkins Hospital. He was knighted. He was Regis Professor at Oxford. And I did a fictionalized, I did a historical um, thriller about uh, autopsy and medicine at the end of the 19th century in which Osler was a character along with uh, Thomas Eakins, the painter, and and William Stewart Halstead, who is the founder of modern surgery. So, so people, Servetus was one of these guys who was just kind of under the surface all the time because the discovery was this in eras uh, in uh, Christianismi Restitutio. He discussed blood circulation because he had done autopsies when he was at the University of Paris. In fact, he was he was the surgeon in chief after um, Vesalius, who is considered the founder of modern anatomy. And he hypothesized about major circulation, which is the movement of blood through the heart and the lungs, because before people thought the heart wall was perforated. They didn't know that it had two separate sides. And he even hypothesized about capillaries. And this is long before anyone else did. And when Osler, who was a book collector, came across Servetus's work and saw this, he became a major Servetus collector, which is how we got found out about Servetus in the first place, because there was something called the Bibliotheca Oslerana, which is a catalog of all Osler's books. He had an amazing library, and in it were all these things by Servetus. And we went to the, um, we lived in Connecticut at the time, and we went to the library at Yale, the medical historical library, where they have all sorts of amazing stuff, and we just uncovered all this really, really cool material. And it's it's kind of humorous to me that this 
little he just slipped in this passage on anatomy in this book on theology <laughs> yeah it was just it was just to it would make a theological point and it turned out to be as significant as any anatomical discovery in history and but because the books were destroyed of the three books that were subsequently found the first one was not discovered until the 1660s and Harvey, of course, published in the year, in 1615 or s somewhere around there. So Servetus's work had been lost. Harvey does a major circulation, pulmonary circulation, becomes this huge international celebrity. To now we say, oh, William Harvey discovered blood circulation. No, he didn't. Servetus did. Yeah. Well, I mean, he 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 deserves. Do credit for his independent discovery, but oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Servetus well, uh, equally deserves credit for yes. discovering. Yes, well, that's like Leibniz. Leibniz and and Isaac Newton were both working on calculus independently. They both discovered calculus at roughly the same time, and so we say, well, who discovered calculus? Well, you know, both of them did. There's some question as to whether or not Newton had seen something of Leibniz's work, but that's probably they, – they were just working into two brilliant guys happened to be doing the same thing at the same time. Well, I'm glad that that little tidbit of his Servetus's work has survived and become known because that was – you know, that's a clever thing to discover at that time. Very. So, so you mentioned his Unitarian legacy, and you have a lot, a lot about the history of how that developed. And I'll just mention one story which I found – really nice you talk about this heresy trial in the among unitarians in america right. <laughs> but it turned it turned out quite a lot more friendly than did the uh, issue with servetus so i just thought that was a nice illustration of well it's, it, is, it, it is it is yes it is definitely a difference in philosophy that that essentially um one trial ends in a uh burning at the stake and the other one ends in a harumph so I, one, one thing I wrote, wrote down from Osler talking about Servetus, he said, he remained faithful unto death to what he believed was the truth. Yes. And I thought that was yes. just a perfect summary of, a perfect summary. So any rate, so that was excellent. If you don't mind now, I would like to move to stage two and talk a little bit about your other work and your process and things like that. Before we do that, is there anything else that I you think it's essential to get in about Servetus before we? No, I think we 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 covered a lot. The, the book the book is is covers a lot of territory, so um, yeah, point, you can't I'll get in everything. For listeners, yeah, for listeners, we have scratched the surface of this very rich book, and so we've hit some of the highlights. But to really get into the the details of the story, and it's just fascinating fr front to back. So please buy the book and get into it yourself and. Uh, Go through what we've discussed in more detail, and there's tons of stuff that we didn't have that we didn't have time to get to. So that's my pitch for it. Good, I love so, those. So, as we were talking before we started, you and your wife have both written an extraordinary number of books. Honestly, I don't know how you have the time to do it. Um, and so you, I think you started out writing books with your wife. Uh, no, we started writing separately, but then we wrote six books together, and five of them we had a shared vision, and mm -hmm. on the sixth the vision diverged. And as our daughter remembers it, um, I I remember when mommy went after daddy with the fork. <laughs> there's this and, funny line. There's a funny line on your website. Site it says. I have also written a number of books with my wife before we decided to save what was, what left, was left of, of the, the dishes. dishes. Now, I'll tell you why we stopped writing together, since I'm the one who's on. We stopped writing together because that's on her website, too, but it's my line. At <laughs> any rate, well, I'm glad that you were able to get this one done together. Um, I, I'm just going to summarize some of your other titles. I believe your most recent one is Unpunished Murder. Yes, that, that's a book on constitutional law. That's for high school, although it's a good starting point for adults who haven't read con about constitutional law. It's about a massacre in, um, in 1873 in a town called Colfax, Louisiana, where 150 heavily armed white men uh, slaughtered more than 100 black men. And the case ultimately went to the Supreme Court. They couldn't do it on state charges because it was Louisiana. And three men were convicted. They went to the Supreme Court. And in a case called U U.S. v. Crookshank, which is a very 
important case. The three murderers were let go. But in addition, they um, the court undermined a lot of the uh, a lot of the protections written for black people in the 14th Amendment. And it started it started a snowball effect, which ultimately resulted in the Jim Crow laws. It seems although you've done older history, it seems like you've focused on American history of, you know, basically American history and legal rights. And yeah, I'm, a, I'm an American historian. Nancy, Nancy is doing, um, she does uh, European history, uh, mostly women who have held in positions of great power and did remarkable things and have kind of written out of history by the men. And so she's a lot of royalty. She's um, doing one now on uh, Maria Theresa and three of her daughters, Marie Antoinette, being one of them, I think I mentioned that, and uh, I am much mostly constitutional law, but I've also written three books on innovation. Um, I wrote one on early aviation, early automobiles, and submarines, all of which took place in basically the same ten-year period. And you have how many novels do you have? Uh, I think about six. And well, what's the title of the one that includes Osler? Uh, Anatomy know. of Deception. That is Anatomy my best-selling book. Yes, yeah, uh, that okay. one did. That one did. That one did pretty well. All right, I'll definitely check that one out. And so, yeah, my list of Nancy's books are: she's covered Mary Queen of Scots, right. Catherine de Medici, right. Joan of Arc, and Joanna One of Naples. Yes, which is someone I have no familiarity with, I, and who is utterly fascinating. That one, you, that one you should pick up because nobody knows her in, in the United States. And she was an amazing woman, um, defended herself before the Pope, ruled in her own name, started hospitals, fought wars, raised armies, and no one's heard of her. And another one that was interesting to me, one of the co-authored books, is called Deconstructing Penguins. And I have a four-year-old, and so this book seems to be about Get it. how to... How to read? What summarize the, the get it for your four year old? We started when our daughter was in second grade. We were not altogether pleased with the way they were teaching reading. I mean, not how to read the words, but how mm. they were talking about books. You know, mm. did you find a personal relationship with a cat? Or so we decided to start parent child book groups, and we did them, and we brought what I think are a lot of very sophisticated concepts, which we boiled down and used get kids interested in why a book is the way, why you should be interested, what's really going on, what is the author talking about here, what are the characters, what do they mean, not whether you feel, you know, whether they had a cat. And they did stunningly, we ran them, we were going to run them for three grades, we ended up doing it for nine years, and the kids we had in our original ones, I mean, they're off doing all sorts of amazing things now, in addition to, by the way, all getting 750 plus on their English SATs. Um, and that's a, as an incentive. But though that was a really interesting book to write, and it continues to sell. Just people just are discovering it, and we get emails all the time. What do you mean by this? I want to set up a – even if you don't want to set up a book group, it's how you should approach a book with your kid. So just to clarify, you mean you set up groups and other parents would bring their children, and then you would discuss a book? Parents and children. And the okay. discussions broke down not by age but by argument. You'll see it if you read the book. They were they were they were amazing. The, the the sophisticated nature of the discussions by both and often the kids were much more sophisticated about what's going on because they came without preconceptions. And then sometimes you get an argument between one kid and somebody else's parent, which was pretty funny. <laughs> I love that idea. I mean, so my child will is set to go into kindergarten in a year, and so I have a fair amount of anxiety about what we're doing about school and education. So. Well, it's whatever, you you know, 90% of it is what goes on in your house and you're clearly, you know, you're highly intellectually curious and that's the kind of thing that comes, that that you will transmit to your child. I I sure hope so. Do you have anything, so as I said, I mean, you've just written so many books, I'm curious as to how you get it all done. Do you want to, do you want just, to say anything about your process? No, I or? just I, I don't do it like most. You know, Nancy sits down and works for hours and hours at a time. You know, I I sit down, get up, walk around, go to the gym, get an idea, come home. Sometimes I come home and I I've got an idea written on a very sweaty piece of tissue paper. It just 
everybody works differently. Thing is, I, every time I finish a book, I say, oh, I'm going to take some time off. It's really tiring. And then two weeks later, I'm back at it because I love it. It's just, it's really, really fun for me. And history, you know, there's so much you can do. You can go online and read newspapers, not just the articles, but you can see the ads. When I did Anatomy of Deception, it was, you know, a lot of, or another book, Deadly Cure, which was about the introduction of heroin into the United States as a cough medicine for children by the Bayer Company. That's true. And you see the ads for patent medicines, and it's it's wonderful stuff. So I just get to bounce around and live in these. In and right now I'm researching a book on the early NAACP, and they had a magazine called The Crisis, which was edited by W. E. B. Du Bois, which is wonderful. You just read it, look at the you know the ads for um, if you want a position, this is where you get a good job. It's great stuff. It just so. I, I, the, I don't really have an answer other than um, other people probably find me extremely boring, but I really love what I do. Well, like I said, this is the only book of yours I've read so far, but it was it was just it was wonderful. So well, thank you. And so, have you? I noticed you put one. I think it was one of your novel novels out just online uh, through yourself. Generally yes. speaking, have you had good success with publishers? Or no. Do you have any horror With that one, or? no. I, um, I, I, publishing, I, I have a thousand publishing stories, almost none of them good, and none of them that I'm... All I can say is you go into this business because you believe and you love writing. You do not go into this business to be a bestseller or to be famous or anything like that. It is a terrible business for that. But writing itself is just a glorious thing to do. And the book that I put out on Kindle, I had written and I thought was, you know, I thought it was pretty good. Nobody picked it up and there it was. And it's kind of dated now. And so I just got my, after, I don't know, 20 years, I just got my first Goodreads review and it's one star. Well, you know, the book's kind of dated, but there's a lot of good stuff in it. It's about a company town that loses its company, which may be something that we will be dealing with in, in the not too distant future. But um, they're just, you know, it's just fun to do it. Okay. So your website is lawrencegoldstone.com. That's right. Nancy's is nancygoldstone.com. That's right. Is there yep, anywhere else it. that people need to be looking to find your work or your updates? No, we're, you know, websites work or um, Amazon or, you know, this, we're around. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll do show notes too, so I'll definitely drop the links into my show notes. Thank you. For people to look at. And so I think we're going to wrap it up at that point. Thanks a lot for being with us today. I really well, appreciate it. Thank you. It. This I, was really fun. It was really fun to talk to you. I loved your book, and I hope people go out and read it and buy it. I think it's a very important part of history that thank most you. people aren't aware of. I will not disagree. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's honestly, yeah, it's it's one of the favorite. It's one of the my favorite history books that I've read. So, well, thank you, truly. Well, this has been the Self and Society podcast. For more, please see ariarmstrong.com.